The Spectator's podcast now have a newsletter. Sign up for free at spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast dash highlights to get The Spectator's podcast highlights in your inbox every Monday. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm extremely pleased to be joined by Kate Telcher, who is the author of a new book about the amazing palm house that's the centrepiece of Kew Gardens, and it's called Palace of Palms, Tropical Dreams and the Making of Kew. Kate, welcome. Now, we now think of Kew Gardens as an absolute staple part of London's touristic landscape. But when your story begins, its very future was kind of in doubt, wasn't it? Well, yes, I start um, my story with the government inspection of Kew. This is at the moment when Queen Victoria has just ascended to the throne and there's a review of royal household spending and and there's a question about whether um, the royal household should keep on the gardens or if they're just a drain, an unnecessary drain on the expense. So there's this elaborate report that's conducted by, among others, John Lindley, who's the secretary of the Horticultural Society, and Joseph Paxton, who's the gardener uh, of the Duke of Devonshire. And they go all the way around the gardens, the, the botanic gardens. At, at that stage, it's really just quite tiny. It's just 11 acres and it's in bad repair. So they write their report. Uh, in fact, it's, it's John Lindley who writes the report. And he really advises that there are kind of two options. His favourite option is that you, you build up and expand this botanic garden and you actually make it a public botanic garden worthy of the nation and indeed of use to the empire or that it's abandoned. And this report sat around for a couple of years and then reports came out that actually that option of kind of abandoning queue became more likely and there was, there was great concern and uh, letters to the Times were written and there were questions in, uh, in the House of Parliament and it became a matter of public concern. And it was at, at the point that the gardeners were instructed to change the hothouses into sort of stoves to uh, grow exotic um, fruits in that the whole, whole collection was to be disbanded, that things started to change. There was this outcry and Q was saved for the nation. A, po- a point you make, actually, that that's kind of it seems to bear here is that at that point... It seemed very odd, didn't it, to a lot of people that even though Edinburgh and you know most of the European capitals had really serious botanic gardens, London didn't have one in that same sort of, you know, in a way that would compete with the ones in, say, Berlin or whatever. And these things, you know, we were the heart of empire and it seemed like a very obvious thing for us to have. You know, these, these samples would have been available and... Yes, it was, it was seen as a sort of source of national shame that there was no great and indeed publicly funded, government-funded botanic garden. And, uh, you know, there, it was always right from the start seen as a potential kind of boon to empire. Uh, and it was imagined as being a kind of at the hub of this network of colonial botanic gardens, which could exchange plants 
And so that if a plant grew in one colony in one part of the world, it could be possibly transplanted to another place which had similar climatic conditions uh, with sort of untold profits. So it was always a kind of uh, imperial and commercial venture from the start. And, and that was one of the ways that the government funds were justified. Yeah. Now, Queen Victoria, slightly dismayingly, didn't seem to give much of a toss about the subject. Well, certainly when she was younger, um, she, she, she really, yes, couldn't care less about the Botanic Garden. And it was only really with her marriage to uh, Prince Albert, who was interested in things scientific and was interested in gardens. And there was a much longer history of sort of German interest in, in botany and gardens that she too decided that she might become interested. And, uh, and in fact, they were, they were, were sizing up Kew Palace, that wonderful red brick building, as a possible kind of place for their growing family to uh, spend the night, you know, if they were to come down to Kew from Buckingham Palace. Now, as you say, there's this sort of period of great interest and expanding interest in botany. I mean, one of the kind of remarkable, you know, attractions of your your story is there are sort of walk-on parts for Darwin's in there, Humboldt's in there. Lord Alfred Russell is in there that, you know, sort of almost every sort of great Victorian botanist seems to have a sort of walk-on part. Did you, did you know that was going to happen when you started? Well, I, I, the, the book kind of grew and grew, really. But the reason that all of these people have their bit parts is that the first director of Kew, Sir William Hooker, and then his son, who becomes the second director, Joseph Hooker, really kind of helped to establish the discipline of botany through this extraordinary network of correspondence. So Sir William Hooker had been professor of botany at Glasgow, uh, Glasgow University, and he actually he was longing to come back down south and always set his, or for a long time, set his sights on being the director of, of Kew as a public botanic garden. And he schemed and manipulated his way for, you know, years before he finally got the prize. But anyway, he built up uh, his own private herbarium, that is a collection of dried plants. He, he built that up through this network of correspondence. And that's how botany worked. You corresponded with each other. So he's corresponding with Humboldt from the time that he is professor of, of botany. And it is a way of acquiring specimens and information from across the world. And tell us a little about um, Hooker's sort of arrival in place, because as you say, there were, you know, he did have to scheme a bit. And there seems to be in the, the race, if you like, to become the, the director, a sort of, it starts to emerge this kind of sense of the, the difference between the sort of rather aristocratic professors of botany and the you know, working plants men. I mean, his rival being, you know, John Smith, who was already at Kew. Yes, well, he, he may have been a rival or may not have been a rival, but yes, there is certainly a distinction between, I wouldn't quite call them aristocratic, the, the professors. They are, they are gentlemen, but not quite gentlemen because they have to kind of work for a living. But one of the reasons that Sir William did finally get the position was actually he was, he, he was prepared to take it at a reduced salary. He was so keen to get this job that, that you know, he was 
Um, he had enough private income, really, to, to be able to take the reduced salary. But at the same time, he also had to um, have other sort of ventures on the side. So he had, a, he had this whole network of publishing. So he's got all of these botanical journals and magazines, and some of them really quite popular ones, which he's sort of supplementing his income as well. So he's quite entrepreneurial too. But yes, there is a distinction between the, the sort of botanical scholars and scientists and the gardeners, the horticulturalists. And, and John Smith, whom you mentioned, was the head gardener uh, at Kew uh, from the time that it was a royal botanic garden to, to the time that it became the public botanic garden. And he came from very humble origins. He left school, I think, at 13 he taught himself Latin with the help of a dictionary so he could study botany um, because, of course, everything was in sort of botanical Latin. He comes down to London, like many Scots, many Scottish gardeners, they come south for employment and he gets employed in the Royal Gardens at Kew. And then, through his own sort of hard work and study, becomes a real expert in ferns. And so he's a self-taught botanist and also a very much a practical gardener. And in the gardening press, he is he's sort of uh, another candidate for the possible position of um, director of, of Kew. The extent to which he really believed he would be a candidate, I'm, I'm not quite clear, but certainly... Certainly Hooker, when he arrived, thought that John Smith looked really grumpy because he thought that maybe it was his job, really. Now, as you go on, as you say, the, the Palm House becomes the great centrepiece project. And we'll talk a bit about how it came about. But can you start by saying a bit, you know, what did the Palm mean to Victorians? Because it seems to be layered with signification and meaning and economic importance. Yes, well, the Victorians inherited the idea from Linnaeus that palms were the princes of the vegetable kingdom, so that they were the most noble, most beautiful and most useful of all plants. So they're really the ultimate plant and they kind of far surpass anything that Europe has to offer. So the idea of uh, palms as being boundlessly fertile um, so they can provide every possible necessity for human life. In fact Linnaeus also thought that early mankind had subsisted entirely on palms and Humboldt invented a lovely word for this. He said that early mankind had been palmivorous so just eating palms, but not only eating palms and, uh, you know, palms could provide kind of wine, oil, but also building materials, clothing and, uh, you know, any number of useful tools or indeed musical instruments or palm leaves for writing. So, so there's this, this whole idea that the palm is the most bountiful, most useful of all plants. And on top of that, you also, of course, have a kind of biblical uh, pedigree with the date palm, which is, you know, again, lovely, upright, virtuous, all sorts of associations with the palm uh, in, in, in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And then on, on top of that as well, the kind of association of palms with uh, life of ease and luxury uh, in the tropics and 
coconuts being again the most bountiful and useful of plants. So yes, I mean, there are many layers of meaning that, you know, just cultural ones, not to mention the commercial ones as well. Now, you know, once they decided, you know, we're going to have this some form of, of palm house, I mean, there was the great inspiration for it. You mentioned Paxton earlier, but they had a model, didn't they, which they had to sort of more or less equal or surpass. Yes, well, Paxton um, was the gardener uh, employed by the Duke of Devonshire uh, at Chatsworth. And Devonshire um, was the most ambitious and ostentatious of, 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 of aristocrats in terms of um, wanting to build up his garden. And in Paxton, he found just the ideal, innovative, creative gardener who not only, you know, um, uh, I mean, not only made landscape gardens tremendously, built him an enormous arboretum, but also built the largest, most spectacular conservatory uh, of all. Um, so the, the great stove or conservatory at Chatsworth was immense. It had a, a, a sort of aisle down the centre, which was so wide you could drive a carriage. It was landscaped. It had a, a, a tropical plants from all over it. It was one of the, the kind of the wonders and glories, uh, certainly of Derbyshire, but also of, of, of Britain. But it was this aristocratic glass house. And glass houses really were the preserve of the aristocracy. Incredibly expensive to build, to stock, to run. So this was the model. And indeed, Hooker thought it sort of slightly inappropriate that the most glorious of glass houses should be aristocratic. And, and he wanted a public glass house that would vie with Chatsworth. And initial designs were really kind of based on Paxton's uh, Chatsworth uh, model. And indeed, the architect who had been associated with the conservatory uh, at Chatsworth became the architect associated with the Palm House at Kew. So there were links. But then entering into the story, we have Richard Turner, the wonderfully innovative iron founder and engineer from Dublin, and he makes the Palm House something special and quite different. He's sort of the hero of your book, in a sense, isn't he? Well, yeah, I'm very taken with Turner. He's incredibly ambitious and incredibly enthusiastic uh, and energetic, and he, he really, really wants to make his name with a design that he says, you know, is going to be as near as perfection as, as you could possibly imagine. And he, he sort of pulls out all the stops to create a palm house that will, as he say, be worthy of the nation and will make his name uh, too as well. Well, he mentioned that he was sort of, I don't know, maybe saddled is the wrong word, but he was conjoined with an architect, the same architect who was involved in the, the great stove at Chatsworth. I mean, is this again this funny two-tier thing in Victorian society that, you know, just as there was the, you know, the botanist and the the gardener, the idea that that a kind of iron iron founder could actually design this great thing was was a bit below the salt. I mean, you know, he didn't get credit for essentially inventing the glasshouse, did he? 
Well, not, certainly not during his lifetime and, and really not until the 1980s was um, Richard Turner credited properly. I think there were perhaps sort of two reasons for this. You know, one was the class reason that he was a tradesman, really. He's an iron founder. He's not um, a professional architect. He's not well-connected. Decimus Burton, the architect, is fantastically well-connected. His father, James Burton, built sort of vast swathes of London. Lots of Bloomsbury uh, were built by uh, Burton. And so his own son was in a good position uh, when he was trained as an architect to land major commissions. So Decimus Burton, from a young age, was doing things like laying out Hyde Park and Green Park and designing uh, Hyde Park Corner. So he's, he's very, and he's very used to uh, aristocratic c- circles. He's incredibly clubbable. So you've got him on the one hand, uh, and on the other hand, you've got um, Turner, who comes from Dublin. So there are uh, lots of kind of colonial assumptions that mean that he has to, uh, you know, fight against all the prejudices against Irish workmen whom he employs and uh, uh and the idea that an Irishman could be a brilliant uh, engineer and innovative designer as well. Yes, and his engineering skills, which were obviously sort of largely self-taught. Entirely self-taught, yes. Um, but that's not unusual. That's not unusual in glasshouse design. I mean, Paxton as well is a self-taught engineer, designer of of. of extraordinary structures so yes at this stage you know the glass house is this interesting kind of a structure that is halfway between architecture and engineering and is um is often designed or elements of it are designed by people who are you know have more of an interest in horticulture than anything else because it's functional and it has to you know it has to be properly adapted for the plants you know in terms of getting enough light I mean that's the big problem in this murky climate of ours is getting enough light uh, for the plants and there's some sort of fascinating detail about how I mean at least to start with you know Turner will come up with a design Burton will redraw it Turner will get wind of it and quietly appeal to Hooker on the side saying you know he's ruining my designs (laughs) you know what were yes what were the innovations that Turner made that that Others couldn't well, it, well, it, see. It's yeah. Well, it's it's Turner and his foreman, and, and 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 unfortunately, I couldn't find out the foreman's name. And it may well be that most of the genius lies with the foreman rather than with Turner. <laughs> but but together, they devised a way that they could span a kind of unprecedented width, with um so uh, with a, with just a single a single uh, row of arm of cast iron columns on either side. What they're doing is they're using wrought iron and um, they get this, this, this much greater width span of the arches. And then what Turner also uh, discovers is that he's kind of reading about in, in the engineering press and he discovers a new patent that's just been taken out for, from, for sh- building iron ships. And uh, he decides that maybe he could use this this kind of deck iron. It's called. It's a form of wrought iron. Uh, and the, uh, the the new kind of patent. He maybe it has a structural use. And so that what he's doing is essentially taking 
uh, ideas from shipbuilding and applying them for the first time to fixed structures. So that's his great innovation. And he is, yes, he's always trying to kind of smuggle them out past Decimus Burton. And it's his great moment of triumph when his wrought iron arches are tested and they're proved to be stable and safe and Decimus Burton must, you know, must acknowledge his genius. At least that's the way that Turner sees it. Yes, no, there's, and also the, the details, it's wrought iron rather than cast iron. There's a kind of slightly tragic aside about a cast iron building that goes wrong. Yes, um, that's the Anthem um, at uh, Brighton, which was this extraordinary, enormous glass house that was... I think it was a dome that was meant to be bigger than the dome of St Peter's at Rome uh, and it was made of cast iron ribs and I think the moment that they removed the scaffolding these ribs sort of started to swerve and give and then the whole thing just collapsed in a, a shower of sparks and I and I think that the kinds of remains uh, remained uh, a sort of uh, the ruins of it remain for, for several years as a kind of melancholy reminder of, of this great kind of failed project. Yes, so there were, there were many of these ambitious glasshouse ideas at the time. Quite high stakes. Now, the glass itself, again, the very, the most modern sort of careful experimental science went into determining that, didn't it? Yes, well, it was it was sheet glass, which is in itself a, a kind of relatively new technology. But the particular thing that was interesting was the tint of the glass, because it wasn't clear as it is these days, but it was actually tinted this very pale shade of uh, green. And that shade was determined through a series of experiments by a chemist and photographer by the name of Robert Hunt. Now, Hunt, he's another sort of self-made man. He's a, a, a scientist who gets very interested in, you know, both the new sort of technology of photography and the effects of light on plant growth. And he carries out, uh, you know, a number of experiments with using coloured glass uh, and seeing if that affects plant growth. And um, so he's the kind of go-to man um, if you want to think about light and plant growth. Because one of the problems with the structure, the size of the palm house with so much glass, is the danger of scorching. So that the, 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 the leaves of the plants might actually be uh, exposed to too much heat. So um, they were trying to uh, find a, a shade of glass that would prevent scorching but allow plants also to grow in a healthy way. So yes, Robert Hunt conducted a series of experiments using the extracted juice of palm leaves and photographic paper and different colours, different coloured glass to see which one was best suited. And he ended up with a shade of glass that actually was really quite like shade of glass, that uh, green glass that had fairly traditionally been used in horticultural structures for, you know, similar reasons. So John Smith, the curator, the head gardener at Kew, and who was always very sceptical of anything scientific, sort of said, well, yeah, 
surprise, surprise, you know, <laughs> He's, um, he's, you know, all these scientific experiments, which, you know, he can't, is very doubtful about, you know, how could anyone conduct these experiments on, uh, in the depths of winter on palm, juice extracted from palm leaves, you know, this is all nonsense. He's saying, Anyhow, surprise, surprise, they've ended up with, you know, what we knew would work anyway. Yes. And, and, and speaking of sceptics and malcontents, you know, we haven't touched on the, on the outgoing, you know, former director of, of Q who, you know, flounced with all his toys and took all the botanical records home. And, and when they were started to build the palm house, magnificent structure that is, he said, repeated, didn't he, you're building this in completely the wrong place. Well, actually, Maybe with no, justice. That was, that, so, no, that, the, person, the person who objected to the place was John Smith. Oh, it was Smith, was it? Sorry. So, yeah, no, 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 Smith is always... So, so John Smith is always... The voice of kind of, of doom, or, or well, no, John Smith because he he knew the gardens so well, knew that the site that they had chosen to build the palm house on was the site of a former lake uh, that was partly silted up and that was boggy and that was liable to flood, and the palm house which had basement rooms for its boilers and it also had a tunnel that connected the boiler rooms with the chimney, or, which was disguised as an Italian campanile, a bell tower. So he, he always from the start suspected that this tunnel and the basement boiler rooms would flood, and he was proved right. And, the, and, and although he took, had some satisfaction in being proved right, he also had the real problem of trying to keep these boiler rooms dry and, ha and pumping them out. They had kind of fire engine pumps down there and labourers pumping out in, in, in these incredibly hot, awful conditions, just trying to keep the water from getting in the boilers because it's really difficult to run boilers when you've got damp coke. And so uh, Smith is always complaining about the site and it's a practical problem for him. Is it, I should ask, I don't think you touch on it, is that problem, obviously they're not running the boilers on coke anymore, but is that, is, is that problem resolved in the modern palm house? Yeah, they still no, wishing no, it, it is, it is. They, 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 um, yeah, that's not the problem. They don't run it on coke anymore. It's, it's all rather sophisticated. The boilers are, uh, are actually kind of located quite near where the Campanile is. Um, and the, the whole palm house was renovated extensively in the 80s, which is actually when they created a, a basement area which formerly had uh, a, an aquatic display and aquariums and things. That, that's no longer open for health and safety reasons, um, I believe. Um, but that, so no, there's no problem there anymore, no problem with flooding. And in terms of stocking it, how did, how did that take place? How did they go about it? Obviously they had some palms already. Yes, they had palms. They had they had glass houses on the old botanic garden, but these were far too small, and the palms kept on smashing the glass. That's always the problem when you have palms: is that they grow really can grow anyway, really quite quickly, and they've got this very tough kind of growing t spike at the top, and that can just break through plane of, panes of glass. In fact, it still does so today in the palm house at Kew. But, yeah, how they had to um, transport some of these grape palms from the old buildings, which had to be dismantled. 
the palms themselves had to be kind of dug out of these big kind of brick beds that they were in, in um, uh, and in incredibly heavy and big palms and enormous roots had to be put on these rolling platforms and I think they had to be rolled about sort of half a mile into the new building and then they had to use um, lifting gear from the dockyards so they had windlasses and winches and things to get them in and into position and then upright again so that they had the palms that were on site at Kew but they also had full-grown palms that were donated by aristocrats like uh, Sir George Staunton, who had an estate at Lee Park in Hampshire, and he had palm, a palm that, that had outgrown his own glass house. So, yeah, he donated that. It had to be packed up in a, a special wooden case, and it was, I think, yeah, um, put on its own carriage on the railway, and it travelled the 72 miles all the way to Kew. So yes, a whole elaborate, elaborate ways of stocking the palm house. And as you say, you know, the, the palm house became a sort of central hub for all these botanic gardens around Empire. I mean, Hooker sort of used people, not least his own son, as, as ambassador come collectors, didn't he? He did indeed. So, uh... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Why do you do your business? Oh, sorry. I was just momentarily trying to take my six-year-old out of the room. Sorry. No, I realise that. Uh, trying to be... Should we stop for a minute? Trying to be as unintrusive as possible, but unsuccessful. I know. I realise. I mean, six-year-olds happen. Um, what, what were we saying? We so were you were just about... talking about this, this sense that it started to... You know, we had these extraordinary botanists heading up the Orinoco and you know, Joseph Hooker being sent on very expensive expeditions to find rhododendrons and that sort of thing. Yes, well, okay, so so Joseph Hooker, uh, William Hooker's son, was keen to make his name as a botanist, and to do that, really, uh, you had to go on an expedition, and the further and more uh, unknown in botanical terms, that you know, the lands that you could reach, the better. So when he was very young, Joseph Hooker managed to be appointed, you know, partly through his father's intervention, managed to be appointed botanist on the expedition to the Antarctic. So he was, uh, this was a, it was, it was also um, to set up these magnetic observatories all the way round the South Atlantic. So he went on this extraordinary expedition and at every landfall he um he collected plants both living and uh and ones that he dried um which were sent back to his father as well to build uh, the collection at Kew. Do you think you could talk a little bit about you know how the story kind of well it doesn't come completely to an end but how you know the hooker era ends and we move into well the, the second hooker era if you like it's a fantastically nepotistic story in some ways so, yes, yeah, so Sir William Hooker really had two main aims. One, one was the promotion of Kew uh, and, to, you know, and the building of the Palm House, this great signature building, which is incredibly you know, daring and innovative uh, as the centrepiece of Kew. Um, that's one part of the story. 
But the other, his other great aim really was the promotion uh, of his son's career. And he not only managed to get Joseph appointed to on these various expeditions overseas, but he also got him appointed assistant director and finally managed to also engineer the succession, even kind of beyond the grave. Because one of uh, Hooker's great kind of possessions and what he used as a kind of bargaining tool was his private herbarium. So this herbarium was the largest, most expensive, greatest private herbarium in Britain. And he said he would donate it to Kew um, uh, at, a, you know, at a very good price but if his son were appointed director of, of, uh, and successor. And so uh, after Sir William's death, Joseph duly offered the herbarium uh, to the government who did buy it for a kind of a, a good, very good cheap price. And then, surprisingly, Joseph also became um, director of Kew. This or is not John to say Smith. that he was... Not about John Smith, but by that time, John Smith had retired and was nearly blind, and was blind probably by then. But it's not to say that Joseph wasn't actually a very accomplished botanist and scientist and, you know, at, at the cutting edge of science of his day, but that, you know, he could not have done it without his father's help. Yeah. No, and, and, and John Smith's ferns end up being put to good use, though, don't they? I mean... Yeah, well, yeah, John... Yeah, John Smith's ferns are, are, um, ended up in the, the Natural History Museum where they re remain today and you know one of the the kind of major important uh, collections and um yeah i mean smith in old age yeah um became almost completely blind but he continued he sort of outlived them all and he um he he wrote lots of books he dictated books when he was blind he had a secretary and um lots of pop popular botanical books so you know he had the last word you say also that his entry in the DNB says that he wrote a he wrote a history of Q that was so candid nobody could publish it. Did you get to read it? Yes, yes, and that's where um, I mean that's where all of these sort of grumpy and unflattering uh, comments from um, Smith come from. Yes, yeah, so he he has this kind of commentary about the hookers all, that runs all the way through that. I mean, the thing about Smith is he is, you know, he's both incredibly loyal and, and, and devoted to Q and also very kind of sceptical about so-called scientific botanists who, who really know nothing about practical horticulture. And the other thing about him is he's completely, I mean, he's in completely in love with his plants. So he really hates it, you know, when the hookers go pruning in the palm house. I mean, you have to cut things down from time to time. They do, you know, outgrow the palm house. And, you know, these days, too, they have to cut things down in the palm house. But for Smith, these are, these are kind of terrible traumatic events. And he records the, you know, the de deaths and, uh, of the plants in his journals as black days. So he says, you know, he knows the whole history of these plants you know, the seeds they were grown from. He's nurtured them. He's put so much of himself into them. And he says, you know, cut down and dispose of those 
And there's a little care as if it were a common geranium, that kind of thing. He's invested in his plants and he's grieved when they go. Now there's, there's one plant they never quite get that's the coco de mer, as we think of it, yes. the double coconut. The double coconut. The double coconut is the most uh, magnificent uh, and fabled of all the palms. Um, it's got a long history of, of kind of mystery. Um, the coco de mer is famous because it has the largest seed uh, and, and uh, um, fruit in, in the plant kingdom. And the, uh, the seed is also shaped like uh, it is thought to shape, be shaped like female genitalia on one side and buttocks on the other. So it's always been this extraordinary curiosity and it was much in demand in the 17th century in Europe um, for cabinets of curiosity. These great sort of nuts were inlaid with silver and embellished and incredibly expensive. It's also used in Chinese medicine as a kind of universal cure-all and uh, an aphrodisiac. And so they, they were incredibly sought after. Nobody in Europe, Europe knew quite where they came from and they had kind of all sorts of fantastical tales, for instance, that they grew under the sea and hence the French name Coco de Mer. But it was discovered in the 18th century that they actually grew on a very limited number of islands in the Seychelles. And they then, then became so exploited that, that they became very endangered, as they still are. But it was the kind of the great dream that Hooker had, that he should be able to show off a, a, a double coconut uh, in his great new palm house at Kew. And he had the opportunity. It's really, really, really difficult to germinate a coco de mer. I mean, it remains really hard. However, a botanist um, who, a bohemian botanist by the name of Boja, um, sent him, who's on Mauritius, sent him a, a germinated uh, coco de mer. It, got a, it had its own special barrel to be transported. It was on a great steamship. There, there, it was given a free passage because it was deemed to be such a, a precious botanical prize. Uh, it arrived in healthy state at Kew and it didn't flourish. <laughs> it, it survived for two years and then sadly died. And, and, there were, and John Smith says, I think he had sort of eight separate attempts to try to cultivate a coco de mer uh, at Kew and, and never finally succeeded. However, today there is a coco de mer in the palm house at Kew, so you can go along and see it. Should you visit? Well, a happy ending then. So go to Kew and see the Coco de Mer. And meanwhile, read Kate's wonderful book. Kate Telcher, thanks very much indeed for your time. <laughs> Thank you very much, Sam. I enjoyed it. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you. The Spectators podcast now have a newsletter. 
Sign up for free at spectator.co.uk forward slash podcast dash highlights to get the Spectator's podcast highlights in your inbox every Monday.